Go ahead, grab your Bibles. If you have a device, we're in the ESV version. We're going to Acts uh, 19. Acts 19. It's going to be a bit of a pointed sermon this week. Some of you are thinking, Ronnie, have you not been preaching the last two months? They've all felt pointed. Well, this one's very pointed. Um, I'm going to be asking a lot of questions um, of which I'm not going to give an answer to every one of those questions, but they're really meant to be reflected on. Although now that I'm thinking about it, the only reason why I couldn't answer a lot of them last service is because we had time constraints. Uh, and in the words of Rachel Dillon, she said, I think the more spiritual people come to the 11 a.m. because they know there is no time constraints. Thank you, Tammy Van Hove. Appreciate that. Well, again, let me, let me point you back here to our backdrop. These are our values, in case you didn't know that. Um, Gospel-centered, relationally driven, God-glorifying. Uh, and if, again, if you, if you go to our new website, don't go there now. But when you go to our new website, you can click on the front page and we describe what it means to be gospel-centered. Okay, and this is what it says on the site. So you're not getting some bait and switch, right? Um, it says, because we've been transformed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we want every part of our lives to reflect the good news of the gospel that was given to us by grace through faith in Christ alone. And then we finish it off by saying, as the church, we value keeping the gospel central in everything we think, say, and do. And that, that's always the attempt, the, the imperfect attempt here at Substance. But one of the things that the gospel does is that it challenges us. The reason why we preach the gospel, number one, is because uh, for guys that do what I do, that's what this book, this Bible tells me I'm supposed to do, right? Uh, but the other reason why is because the gospel challenges um, our belief systems. It challenges our world views. It, in fact, it, it shows us that we all have personal gods. It, it, it reveals that to us. It, it surfaces that in our hearts. It also tells us that as a church, we have church held gods, small g, gods, right? And the gospel always is telling us why Jesus Christ is not only better, and he's better, right? But not only that he's better, but also that he's the only true God, right? And so the book of Acts, it shows us what happens when the kingdom of God, which we're all a part of, coming to faith in Jesus Christ means you're a part of this new kingdom where Jesus is ruler and reigning over our lives. But the book of Acts, what it's been showing us all this time is what happens when the kingdom of God invades the kingdom of the world, the thing that we were rescued out of. Well, what is the kingdom of God? Well, Basically, it means this. The kingdom of God is life with Jesus under his sovereign rule and reign. Now, Jesus is not our president. He's not the CEO of the world. He's not the CFO of the earth, right? He is the ruler. He is the, he is the reigning king of the universe, and he's sovereign. So then what is the kingdom of the world? Well, the kingdom of the world is a life ruled not by God, but by the passions of our flesh, where God has denied his rightful reign as creator and king over all. So follow me here. Whenever the kingdom of God invades the kingdom of the world, what's going to happen is that we're going to find resistance, which is why the kingdom of God is like an invasion um, and not really just like an expansion, right? I don't want to call it an expansion. We want to say that it's an invasion. And we say invasion because it's like a war, when God comes in and breaks through the walls of darkness in human beings, right? It's like a war. 
right? It's not just an expansion, right? It's not just like a new shopping center coming into town, right? The problem is that we prefer expansion. We like expansion over invasion. We're comfortable with expansion. We want God's kingdom to come in and just set up right next to us. You know, we got the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world, right? Like we can have a Chipotle and a Dunkin' Donuts side by side, right? We can do that. Just don't tear down that subway, right? That's kind of what we think. That's just what kind of, that's kind of where our heart goes. But in Acts 19, we're going to see these astounding things that happen. In fact, three astounding things that happen is the kingdom of God moves into the city of Ephesus where Paul actually spends three years preaching the gospel and planting churches. And it's a phenomenal and it's a sharp and it's just this gloriously impacting and dividing work. Because when the kingdom of God comes in, it does, it conquers and it tears down walls of darkness and sin and it does it just dramatically. And that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see some drama. So let's pick up with verse 1 in Acts 19. And I'm going to read through the first 10 verses and then we're going to unpack that for a minute. This is what it says. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. Verse eight, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, which is another word for Christians, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Let's just pause right there. So Paul encounters 12 disciples of John the Baptist, who, by the way, were not yet disciples of Jesus because they were baptized with an insufficient knowledge of who Jesus was. So you following me there? So Although they were baptized by John the Baptist, this wasn't anything John the Baptist did wrong, by the way. It was likely that they didn't stick around to see all of the things that Jesus did that John the Baptist prophesied about that would have resulted in a change of heart that only Jesus can make. So you can dunk someone down in the water and say, I'm baptizing you in the name of repentance in John the Baptist. And you get up and there's not really any change. There's not really any evidence of fruit in your life. We've talked about that a lot here at Substance. And this is just sort of an example of that. But this is what happens is that when Paul comes into them and finds them and questions them and says, hold on, let me understand where your faith is at. Or that if you have a saving faith, what does it say? They believed Paul. They believed him. Their hearts were open to him. So what does he do? He baptizes them in the name of Jesus, not in the name of John the Baptist, but in the name of Jesus. And then he lays hands on them and they begin prophesying and speaking in tongues. And, and the way for us 
to interpret that today would mean that they just started telling everyone about the mighty works of God in some unique ways that we would say were really, really evident of the disciples back in this time when God was trying to say, hey, the kingdom of God has come. Jesus has died. He has risen. And this good news is going to come out in dramatic effect. And so it's going to come accompanied with all kinds of signs uh, and wonders. So that's what we're seeing here as Paul comes into the city of Ephesus and sees these 12 disciples. Now, there's three words I want us to key in on here in verse 5, and it's these three words. On hearing this, on hearing this, it says. So unlike so many others that Paul encounters who are just resistant to the message of the gospel. And we've just been seeing this all the way through the book of Acts, especially when Paul finally gets into it. And even before that, when Peter goes into a town and the people are so resistant to the message of the gospel. But unlike that, um, Paul encounters these men who are receptive to it. And not only that, but they're receptive to their theology being corrected by the gospel. So it's not just the message of the gospel. It's that we all come in with theologies that need to be corrected by the gospel. And because these men had an openness and a humility, they receive what Paul says and they immediately respond in faith. How is that possible? Paul tells us in Romans 10, he says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So there's sort of a methodology in there where our faith comes from hearing the gospel and it has to be the true gospel. It has to be the word of Christ. It has to be the, the, the changing words of Jesus that can be the only thing that changes us from the inside. So what we're seeing here happening, listen to me, is that Jesus is coming into focus for these men. And that's our first point. Jesus comes into focus through the hearing of the gospel. Now, these men had some understanding of repentance. That's great. Not the same thing, though, is it? Right? They were missing the person who grants forgiveness of sins through repentance. Did you see what I'm saying? That there has to be that connection there. It has to be Jesus, not John the Baptist. Maybe that's a familiar narrative in your life. Maybe there's a faith tradition that you came out of that didn't talk a lot about Jesus being the one that we have to place our faith into for forgiveness of sins. Maybe it was just doing things like, man, you got to get baptized. You got to understand some things. You got to take a, you know, a, a, a catechism class. You, you just got to learn. You just got to know. Well, you do got to learn and you do got to know, but at some point, Jesus has to be the one that gets in there and re-engineers your heart and draws you to his words so that you put your faith and trust in him. And the kingdom of God is invasive like that. Do you guys get that? Like it finds you, right? That's how Jesus moves towards you. Interesting, Paul comes into the town and he finds these disciples, but that's how Jesus finds you. That's how he's found you if you're his, right? He does it gently. He does it lowly. He does it lovingly, but he does it decisively too. And these men we see respond with humility and openness. And by the way, they didn't have to respond this way. Isn't that so interesting? And they just could have hit the brakes. They could have argued, which would have not been a surprise at all, because arguing with the words of Jesus is common it's common both inside and outside the church. In fact, Jesus' words are constantly being argued with, right? Who do you think you are questioning the validity of our baptism, Paul? 
How dare you? I mean, can you just imagine them saying this? They could have said that. I think it kind of sounds a lot like us. I think it sounds a lot like me in the ways that I get offended. Don't tell me my experience is wrong. Don't tell me that what I've been taught is wrong or needs correction. I mean, what is your experience on Sundays after hearing the gospel preached to you again and again? If you miss it this week, just come back next week, right? What's, what's, what's been your reaction, right? Got to ask that question. Is Jesus coming into greater focus in your life? Are you experiencing the power of the spirit like these men? Or do you continue in stubbornness and unbelief, even going so far as to speak evil of the ways of Jesus, like we read about what happens in verse nine as Paul continues in the synagogue? Ronnie, I would never speak evil. Well, maybe not verbally, but listen, a life that keeps Jesus out of focus is a life not lived in faithfulness to him. When the kingdom of God invades a repentant heart, Jesus comes into focus and the result is faithfulness and then fruitfulness in the spirit. That's what happens to these brothers. You should ask if your life looks like an ongoing argument against the words of Jesus. Is that really what it is? Is that what it's representative of? So the first thing we see happening here as Paul gets into Ephesus is that Jesus comes into focus immediately for some men who it was blurry to and had some misunderstanding. So he withdraws from the synagogue and then moves for two years, it says, into the hall of Tyrannus so that he could preach freely the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what we see next, that the power of darkness is Exposed. Look what it says as we get to verse 11. And by the way, those of you guys who like spending time at Masterminds or whose favorite movie is Nightmare Before Christmas, you're going like, to like these next verses. You're going to be super pumped about this. This is what it says, verse 11. And, when, uh, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Ha you know, happy Sunday morning, everybody. There it is right there. So we are a generation of just Harry Potter literate Americans, right? And we can read passages like this and just think, man, what a nice spooky story. Remind me to break this one out for Halloween, you know, for the kids, right? By the way, your kids are here now. We're breaking it out today for them, right? But listen, everywhere Paul goes as an ambassador of Christ, this is what it means is happening. New cities, new towns, new people are being invaded by the kingdom of God with the truth of the gospel. The Holy Spirit was giving Paul, man, just this extraordinary power to the point that if a handkerchief or an apron touched Paul, the sick 
are being healed. It kind of reminds us the woman that came up to Jesus and just touched the hem of his garment and she was healed, right? Paul had this kind of power given to him. And not only that, but evil spirits, people were being delivered by evil spirits, right? It was kind of an unprecedented time for these things to happen, like COVID, right? Uh, I'm waiting for some precedented times, to be quite honest with you, right? Um, But the problem was that this was a power never witnessed by the Ephesians before. So what happens is some Jewish exorcists, which is not something you'll likely run across here in Ashland anytime soon. um, This is what they thought. They said, hey, you know, we found this new method by this guy, Paul, to aid us in our craft. So let's invoke the name of Jesus and see if it works for us like it does with this Paul fella. But Jesus, this is the problem, had never come into focus for these seven sons of Sceva, Sceva being this man that we're told was the Jewish high priest. So listen, because these men possessed no faith in Jesus, it made them frighteningly vulnerable to the evil spirit that they were trying to cast out from this man who clues them in with this literally just nutso turn of phrase. Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? I mean, when's the last time an evil spirit like didn't recognize you, right? Now listen, none of us want to know an evil spirit. Like that's never been a thing of mine, never been a dream of mine. Like, hey babe, let's just go see if we can make the acquaintance of some evil spirits on Saturday, right? Like not a goal of mine on any level, right? But this passage tells us that we sure as heck want them to recognize us in the same sentence as Jesus, don't we, right? But look what happens. Instead of these men driving out the evil spirit, the evil spirit drives them out. What are we talking about here? What kind of power are we talking about here in verse 16? Because they literally get beat up so badly that they run out of the house naked and wounded, just shamed in front of their entire society, culture, neighborhoods. And here's what kind of comes up, right? Like if this happened today, here's what the reaction would be. Here's probably what I would say, right? I won't throw you under the bus with this one. Here's what I would say. But hold on, man, weren't they the sons of the high priest? Like, didn't they have the high priest blood in them? Like, weren't they PKs? Like, what's going on? Weren't they pastors, kids? Like, what happened? Here's what happened. We're told in Hebrews 11, verse six, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. To be, somebody who, to be somebody who gets the favor of God, who gets the security of God, who gets the protection of God. Without faith, it's impossible to have that. And you know, when we read this, we go, that's a nice thing to have. That would be a good thing for us to have. So this is what we see. They knew about God. They knew about evil spirits. But the spirits knew about them too. And they had no fear whatsoever that these dudes who thought they could just invoke the name of Jesus could somehow just magically cast them out. So where Jesus is out of focus, the darkness we see is the only thing that becomes clear. But what we also see is that God used this fearful incident to draw new believers into understanding something, which is that the light of Christ is incompatible with dark and deceitful practices. So 
we see these Ephesian believers end up confessing their practices and then burning what is the equivalent, by the way, of $5 million in today's dollars worth of books on magic arts. I mean, we read that and we're so numb to things of this nature, right? We're just so numb to things of this radical kind of nature. But picture these believers going, oh man, we've been devoid, we, we've been hiding some of these, these practices that are compatible with our Christianity and they set them on a bonfire and somebody, I don't know, man, you know, some, some dude had a calculator and totaled it all up, $5 million, right? $5 million worth of books on magic. So when Jesus comes into focus, darkness is exposed, And the fear of God moves believers to greater faithfulness. But he does it through confession and, by the way, destruction, right? The burning of our gods. We either burn our gods or they end up consuming us. Look what happens in 17, what I just covered. It said, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. So everyone's seeing them do this thing. And they counted the value of them and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And then in verse 20, which is a common refrain here in the book of Acts, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord cannot be stopped right? It's an engine that never breaks down or runs out of gas. It just keeps getting stronger as it continues uh, to go. Now, look, I I can't make this story scary for you, right? It's not really my job to do that. I can't lower the blinds, play the soundtrack to The Exorcist, and pray you get some sense of what's being talked about here. Here's what we know about what's going on here. When we look at 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 8, this is what John tells us about the motivations and the mission of Jesus, which was that this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This is what we see happening in a very real way, Right? Because what's going to happen is later is that Paul is going to write a letter to one of the churches in Ephesus or many churches in Ephesus. And because they were a town that was so susceptible to things of this dark nature, this is what he reminds them of. And this is what we're reminded of in Ephesians 6.12. He said, look, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. He's reminding them. He's saying, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Remember who the real war is with, man, because it ain't with the one sitting next to you. There's something deeper going on. There's something deeper and more sinister and more dark at work. How helpful is it for us to remember that? And how we continue to treat one another and serve one another in love, right? And then he finishes Ephesians by saying, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. He's saying, you're not just left out there alone with no protection. He said, put on the whole armor so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, not just stand, but to stand firm, right? So the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ came to invade to infiltrate, to destroy the works of the devil and defeat the spiritual forces of evil that comprise the kingdom of the world that we actually are in battle against. Let that just give you some encouragement. 
as you look out right now, as you get on social media today, or if you're on social right now because this sermon already feels long and laborious, let that give you some encouragement, remembering who it is that we, we wrestle against and remembering who has already defeated those powers and in whose charge we are already held, right? And then reflect on this. If you're a Christian, there are hidden things or there might be hidden things in your life that should cause you fear at the keeping of them. What are those things? What are those hidden things of your life that have the potential to damage and ultimately destroy your faith? Man, our eyes need to see these things as being powerful enough, listen, to leave us spiritually naked and wounded because that's the effect that they have on us. I mean, don't always think they're hidden things either. They may be things that are very open in your life, but very destructive because they do not coexist with the heart that aligns with the heart of Jesus. But listen, what a wonderful grace for these things to be exposed in your heart this morning. And what if they are? What if by opening God's word, reading Acts 19, by some of the dumb things I'm saying, like these things are exposed in your heart, these hidden things, and God convicts you, but he does it not just with a sharp warning or a harsh blow, but by saying, man, come to me. I want to relieve you of these things that are damaging and destructive, that are not causing you peace, that are creating chaos in your life and in your heart. What a wonderful grace for these things to be exposed in your heart this morning. And also a warning as well for us to be very, very careful to consider what those hidden things might be. Now, here's our hope. This is the territory that the kingdom of God is always moving into, whether we know it or not. And I don't, you know, demonic activity is tough for us, isn't it, in America? It's a weird thing. Some of us just think, well, man, it, Ronnie, is there really demonic activity? I mean, there, certainly there is not demonic activity, not in the USA. I mean, like, what are we talking about here? Well, I would encourage you just to look around you right now and tell me that the last three weeks haven't been a field day for demonic activity wreaking havoc and division in our cities and our towns and our churches. How can you say that? Well, because Satan is not super subtle all the time, right? And his master plan is division. It's this thing called division, right? How can I divide the people of God? How can I get them to feed into the passions of their flesh so that they become forgetful of Jesus? So you know what God does in his grace? He uses fearful events like this, like we experience, to jolt us to jolt our systems of belief, to challenge our world views. It's like if you've ever been rear-ended in a car before, right? Has that ever happened to you? It's an awesome experience, right? You're just driving, somebody just smacks right into you and you're just jolted. It feels abrasive. You feel shocked. It's like you forgot that there are actually other cars on the road behind you that have the potential to hit you. What do you do after that? Well, I know what I've done, man. I'm like super aware. I become super alert. Man, you know, the seatbelt, man, the seatbelt is fastened. Kids, fasten your seatbelts. The seatbelt is fastened, right? 
Like I'm kind of, I'm, I'm aware, more aware of my surroundings, right? I'm obeying the rules. I never go over 25 in A-town, right? I slow down. I'm aware of everything that's going on. Are your systems of belief being jolted right now? Well, according to Acts 19, we would say, good, that's great, right? Because God uses fearful and horrific events to make his church less fearful and God help us less horrific. So Jesus comes into focus when the kingdom of God invades Ephesus through Paul. Powers of darkness are overturned. So is the economy. I'm gonna read verses 21 through 41. So buckle in, it's gonna be a bit of a, of a ride right here. Verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. I mean, he's getting the message straight there, wasn't he? Verse 27. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's traveling companions. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples wouldn't let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. And some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 35, and when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. 39, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there's no cause that we can give to justify the commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. There's a lot to unpack here. We're just gonna talk about one particular thing here as I key in on four words at the end of verse 25 when he says, and we have our wealth 
Now get a picture of what's, talk, what's being talked about here, which is this city now going just into crazy amounts of chaos and uncertainty and fear because their trade, their trade is, a, is, a, is in danger and at stake, right? When we make gods of anything other than God, what happens is we feel the need to protect them because in actuality, they are gods who lack power right? That's what we're seeing happening here with Demetrius. Demetrius is just saying this, oh no, if Paul keeps turning people away from the great goddess Artemis, she might be counted as nothing and deposed of her magnificence. So let's just kind of unpack and be clear about what Demetrius is saying. This great goddess is so great that if the people stop buying her silver statues, she's going to lose all of her power and influence over those who worship her. So like Demetrius, this great goddess is so great that you have to protect her commerce or, or the whole thing's just gonna like topple to the ground. How, how great is your goddess, right? As the old praise song goes, minus the deaths, right? I mean, do you see what's happening here? The goddess is not Artemis, it's money, right? It's the God behind the goddess that's moving Demetrius, the silversmith. And by the way, this is a story with the same ending every single time. Whenever the gospel and all of its offshoots infiltrate the hearts and the minds of people, gods are threatened and exposed. Why is that? Because the kingdom of God is moving in and it's tearing down industries it's tearing down economies that have been created and maintained for years and the effect is dramatic, right? The kingdom of God is so all-encompassing what this shows us that it can invade a city in such a way that the economy takes a dive. Can you imagine? So what's really happening here in Ephesus? Well, something sacred is being threatened. And the people, it says, become enraged. Our gods will not be removed by this man who says gods made with hands are not God, right? I mean, it's like when, when, you, when you just, you know, our logic starts to like click in for us and it's just mind boggling to read this and we go, well, how ignorant can these people possibly be? How can they be that blind to the truth? And then we just kind of put a mirror up and think how arrogant to think that we don't have gods just like the Ephesians do. I think COVID has exposed so many of us to our custom-built, handmade gods. In fact, Isaiah talks about this in a really comical way as it unpacks this idea of idols. And basically in Isaiah 44, the point is made that it's the, the, the idea of a handmade God made of wood, the ridiculousness of it, the lack of logic that goes into it. So you get a piece of, a man gets a piece of wood, he chops it up, he uses part of it as a log for a fire that he cooks his meat over. And as he's eating his meat, he's fashioning the other part of the log to be a God that he worships, that he thinks is gonna save him from everything. And so Isaiah and the book of Isaiah, it's pointing out to us just the, the ridiculousness of this, like the, the mind boggling lack of logic nature of it. And then he finishes by saying this, they know not, nor do they discern for he has shut their eyes so that they can't see, they can't see it. 
and their hearts so that they cannot understand. I mean, if that doesn't sound familiar, then we need to pray for discernment because our eyes aren't seeing and our hearts aren't understanding. Because listen, I need you to listen to this. There are gods that we make with our hands that we cannot comprehend with our minds. Why? Because they have invaded the affections of our hearts. We're not that far from Isaiah 44. I mean, the Lord needs to save us from this kind of incomprehensible blindness that we don't really think we're that blind to. Now listen, all these issues right now, and this is me preaching the gospel right now, okay? Just so you know, because the gospel speaks into what I'm about to say. All these issues causing so much division right now. These are all things that the gospel speaks into, but the church says, can't touch this. How is that possible? What might, forgive my language here, cover the ears, what might the sex trade industry, the pornography industry, systemic racism look like if the kingdom of God through the church invaded those spaces with the armor of God fastened tightly and the heart of Jesus burning brightly from us. What might that look like, you guys? The church becomes enraged when its gods are being threatened because the church of God still has gods, doesn't it? Here's some questions. What is causing the riot in your soul today? What's the cause of the enragement in your soul? What is the idol that you are defending like Demetrius? Let me just compound that out a little bit. What is the ideology that you are defending? Maybe that will kind of make it kind of come a little bit closer to home. What do you have in your possession that might be possessing you? These are just questions. What are you afraid to give up because of what you think it might cost you? What has become sacred to you? We need to look to see what enrages us because it might be that the objects of our rage are the very thing that grieve the heart of Jesus. Like these Ephesians. Are we able to do that with discernment? Because what discernment allows us to do is make good distinctions and allows us to love God with our minds by being discerning and making good distinctions. Are you able to see practices and not just practices, but perspectives in your life that are just incompatible with scripture? And here's the question. Are you willing to burn them regardless of the cost? regardless of what you've invested in them. $55 million worth of magic books. The Ephesians were willing to do that because Jesus had come into focus, because the darkness had been exposed and they were fearful of what they were seeing because the kingdom of the world is always characterized by deception and resistance. 
Well, how do we know that we're part of that kingdom of the world or that we're buying into it or that we keep a toe into it or, a, or an arm into it or half our body into it? First John 3, 4 tells us everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. He says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin and no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Doesn't mean they're perfect, but he says no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, John says, don't let anybody deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So they will know us by our fruits and they will know us if our fruits are compatible with the fruit that we claim is the fruit of the Jesus that we proclaim. We have to have compatibility in our life with those two things. On the other hand, the kingdom of God is characterized by not deception and resistance, but deliverance and repentance. How do you know if you're part of that kingdom? First John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So we allow the gospel to correct us we allow the gospel to speak to us, to sanctify us, to make us and form us more deeply into the image of God. And he said, for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning. Again, not perfect because he has been born of God. And then he says this, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. It is evident. There was evidence with the 12 disciples at the beginning of this chapter, right? There was evidence of the people who burned $5 million of magic books. The kingdom of God invades the kingdom of the world that exists in our souls. And it moves us from misunderstanding to understanding. The kingdom of God seizes us with fear when it opens our eyes to hidden practices that need to be burned. Why? Because we're going to be out a lot of dough and God doesn't want us to have that dough. And what am I going to do in the economy? And how am I going to manage? No, 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 no. Because it's damaging to our faith. The most precious thing that we possess the evidence that you are his children is that you will burn your unrighteous practices to the ground. Your unrighteous perspectives to the ground. Which is the first step toward practicing the righteousness of God. That's how dramatic the change is. And guess what? God is so patient. Some of this burning, it's a slow fire for some of us. That's okay. That's okay. Let's see it. Let's understand it. Let's confess it. Let's let it be divulged. God has so much grace with you and with me. That's his kindness. And let me just say this as we end. The kingdom of God is evident in you, Substance Church. It is. I've seen it. I've been the recipient of it. Will we continue to let it change us? Will we let it divulge our practices so that we burn them in the fire? Will we have the humility to admit that we have gods that are being threatened right now? Will we look closely to see what's enraging us and have the humility to accept that maybe the way we've always seen some things needs editing? Because if we believe in sanctification, 
If we believe in loving God with our minds, it requires us letting God change our mind in order to love him more. Will we confess these mindsets and practices? And are we able to do it without any equivocation? Church has a fantastic record of not doing that at all. Because you know what? It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. And it's going to cost like it costs the Ephesians who burned the magic books. And it's going to change the economy of our church and our lives and our town. An economy doesn't only mean money. It means management of resources. What you do with what you've been given, right? It's uncomfortable to manage the resources God gives us because they don't always make us popular when we manage them well. They don't always make us prosperous when we manage them well, but they do produce something that makes us well, which is a flourishing that helps the people around us to see the light and beauty of Jesus Christ. Will we be the church? I've seen us be a weak and ridiculous group of men and women and children who are being radically re-engineered by the good news of Jesus. Man, I have been so grieved this week. I've typed out a resignation letter like 15 times, man. It's been a grieving week for somebody who does what I do. And the men that I've spoken to across the country, who I'm privileged to call friends who do the same thing, it's a grieving thing. Man, I've also, I've also experienced God's grace and kindness through so many of you. Gosh, I'm thinking about a conversation I had yesterday with Casey Bond. What a sweet brother, what a kind brother. He just spoke words of encouragement to me. And I, was, I hope I was able to encourage him and just, you know, understanding that, man, we are, we, we are just a, we're just a couple of fools that worship God together in the same church, trusting one another, loving one another, giving each other the benefit of the doubt, probably disagreeing on a few things too, maybe. I don't know. I don't care. If I, needed a, if I had to wait to get a church where I agreed with everybody to be able to preach to you and love you, there is no church for me. That's why we're gospel-centered. Do you guys get that? Because we have to carve a path up the middle through the things that threaten to polarize us and divide us. We can disagree on some things, and we will. But we don't disagree on this. And we don't disagree on the implications that it has for how we treat one another and live out those things that are the very nature and heart of God. This allows us to love each other without equivocation. It allows us to mourn with those who mourn without equivocation. That's what I'm going to do. And I would ask that you would join me in doing that when we have a nation of brothers and sisters who are bleeding with pain and hurt. Would you do that with me without equivocation? Thank God this isn't my church. 
but it's the church that Jesus builds. Amen. Let's pray he keeps building us into his image as he divulges our practices. Man, he destroys our idols. Praise God. Thank you for doing that. And he comes ever more clearly into focus, which is what Jesus does. He brings himself to us, makes himself nearer, dearer, and clearer to us.